Well, good morning, everybody. So nice to be with you this morning. Uh, my name's Shelton Woods. I'm part of the community here at All Saints. And uh, for those of you that are online, peace of Christ be with you. Glad that you're with us online. And for those of us that are here to get to today, it's good to be with you. I think they thought Mike was going to preach today because if you look on page number eight, um, there's a lot of uh, space for the text there, but um, he will be with us next week. Let's pray together this morning. Father, as we look at the words of Jesus, we ask that your spirit would guide us and teach us for the glory of your beloved son, our savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are just a few. In our secular postmodern age, there really is only one sin, and that is the sin of being narrow. That's basically the only sin right now in our secular age. What is pushed is inclusivity, diversity, equity, being what they call progressive, the one thing that is despised is narrowness. And yet, when Jesus came to describe his way, he had the entire vocabulary of every single language at his disposal to draw upon. He had a database larger than Webster's Dictionary on which he could describe his way. And he deliberately chose this word, narrow, Many Christians are nervous to be called narrow-minded. And non-Christians, and you may be not a Christian here, and you might say, that is exactly why I am not a Christian, because I, I'm not going to be narrow-minded. I am broad-minded. Well, let me begin by making a somewhat surprising statement, and it's not to be sensational or to keep you awake for the next few minutes. Um, these aren't my original ideas, um, but it is this, that I contend, my thesis is, that the church and the secular world has largely misunderstood what Jesus meant when he said narrow here. I don't think we fully understand what he meant. For the Christian our misunderstanding of this is rather easy to prove because we have to take every verse in the Bible and put it within the context of the rest of Scripture. Does it match what the rest of the Bible says? And in most places in the Bible and in the words of Jesus, when he's talking about his kingdom, it's a message of actually a rather broad way and easy way. Uh, Psalm 18.36, uh, you've given me a broad way to travel. Isaiah 40, 
begins with God saying, I'm going to send a Savior, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. That in the wilderness, a highway is going to be built. Not a narrow way, a highway is going to be built. Every valley that keeps you from coming in is going to be cut low every, uh, or, or, or brought up. Every mountain is going to be brought low. The uneven ground is going to become level. The rough places is going to be plain. In terms of the narrow way being hard, in just a few chapters later, Jesus says, my yoke is easy. But that is the way of the transgressor that is hard. So we can't take what Jesus is saying here in isolation from the rest of Scripture. What we need to understand is that this verse is the beginning of the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. That is key in understanding what Jesus meant by narrow here. And we will get to that in just a second. I would say this. These three chapters, uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, probably the only place that the religious leaders would have said amen is after Jesus would have said, my way is narrow. They would have said, that's right, amen. Keep the riffraff out of here. Um, uh, the sinners, that's right. Thank God that we are in this narrow way and everybody else is out. Of course, perhaps like some of us, they completely misunderstood what Jesus was saying. Because later in this book, he says to the religious leaders, the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners are entering in this gate before you are. So how are we to understand this? Here's the way I think non-Christians, if you're not a Christian here, perhaps this is the way that you misunderstand this. They say, yeah, you know, there are two ways. And there is the way of faith and there is the way of science. Those are the two ways. And I choose to be empirically honest and I choose science. And our media today and our public educational system has erroneously and consciously brought about this idiocy. This is just a basic misunderstanding of the role of science, and I don't want to spend too much time here, but it's just all around us. I was watching the PBS NewsHour this week, and somebody said, science has to hurry up, um, as if it's, it's this entity. I bought running shoes this week, and I, I went home, and I opened the box, and on the inside of the box it said, we run on science, and you can too. Part of this is that the church has put itself in this corner, the anti-intellectual arm of the, the Christian church, particularly in America in the 19th and 20th century, uh, the Scopes Trial of 1925, known as the Monkey Trial. You can read a lot more about that in Marsden's fundamentalism and American culture, but the church has misunderstood the difference between faith and science. Science is a discipline. It is a method in the way that we understand the world, physical laws, our bodies, the universe that we live in. Science begins with doubt. If you're a scientist here, if you're a doctor here, if you're a mathematician, we begin with doubt. And then we do experiments after experiments until that doubt is taken away. 
and that we can come to the truth with a small t because we can empirically prove our doubts to be right or wrong. Here's an illustration that might help some of us. Say we're born into a mansion that has 470 rooms and we grow up in that building. And as we're growing up, we notice that there are screws everywhere. There are screws holding things up. There are things, the screws are holding the walls together. And, and we find a screwdriver. And we begin to experiment, trying to understand the way that these screws work. And we go from room to room, and as we turn to the right, the screw gets tighter. And when we screw counterclockwise, it starts to become loose. And we go through each room, and we do experiment after experiment, and we figure out, well, the person that made this house made that so that the law was when you screw it to the right, it tightens, to the left, it loosens. And so we write a book on the theory or the fact of the way that screws and screwdrivers work. Okay, are you all with me here? Now, it would be absurd if we said in that book, because I figured out the way that screws work, I believe nobody made this house. Because I figured out the way that a screw works. And in some sense, that's largely what has happened in the Western world. As we continue to advance through scientific discovery, all, all we're doing is understanding the laws that God put in place. That's all that we're doing. Do you know why the West modernized before the East? Why technology advanced here in the 17th and 18th century and not in China and Japan and Southeast Asia? It was because there was this certain belief that there was a personal God who put laws in place and invites us to understand the way that our bodies work, the way that these physical laws work. As opposed to, let's say, India, that believed that the world was sitting on top of a tortoise, um, and, that, and that's the reason for earthquakes and, and so forth. In fact, it is science and math that leads great minds like Sir John Polkinghorne or John Lennox, uh, both mathematicians at Oxford, uh, to proclaim their faith in God and in Jesus Christ. It's a method. You can say that you believe in the scientific method, but it's foolish to say uh, that I'm a, a scientism answers all of my questions. Science cannot empirically prove that the person sitting next to you loves you. Science cannot empirically prove that there is no God. But I think that there's another way that non-Christians misunderstand what Jesus meant when he spoke about the narrow way. That he was speaking about the narrowness in our social systems. And that, unfortunately, is... I'm so sorry if you have that view. Because if there was anybody that was inclusive in this world, it was Jesus Christ, our Savior. If there was anybody who believed in diversity, it was Jesus Christ, our Savior. I mean, you look at his disciples. He had people on the left who were collaborators with the Romans, the tax collectors. He had people on the right. They were terrorists. He brought them together. 
In terms of social exclusivity, read this sermon. He says, what I want you to do is I want you to love your enemies. That doesn't sound very exclusive or inclusive to me, you know. Love your enemies? I'm supposed to do that? Turn the other cheek? Give to the beggars? Don't hoard your treasure? Who did Jesus spend most of his time with? Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering near to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes, they grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Jesus went to the social outcasts. He had a message that they needed to turn to him and not stay in their situation. No one that I've read of in the first century treated women with more dignity than Jesus Christ. And what did he do? He invited them in to be his disciples. They were part of his group. So he he was not narrow. And you know when the church, when we start to move outside of our idea of narrowness, we start to change the world. Between 1850 and 1889, 300,000 Chinese left China and came to the United States. 300,000 of them. The Qing dynasty was in its death throes, and they were looking for a place where they might be able to make some money, and they heard about gold in California, so they came across the Pacific. But they didn't bring their women. The mothers wouldn't let their sons bring their their wives because they wanted them to come back. In fact, the Chinese didn't plan on staying here. They planned on making a lot of money and going back and being able to pay their taxes and then being able to get their land back. But there were a few thousand women who, Chinese women, who were brought over under false pretenses and they were actually trafficked. They were actually slaves moving from one Chinatown to another, servicing these. 290,000 Chinese men. You know the number one reason that they died? You might think sexual disease. No, it was suicide. And what the church did, particularly in San Francisco, was it went out and found these women that were pariah of American society and began to care for them. And then told them about Jesus Christ and the gospel. And some of what we see right now in China in terms of the explosion of the gospel is because of going to that community. So who would Jesus reach out to if he came today? Who's on the margins of our society right now? Who are the most vulnerable? There's a segment of American population that 50% of this segment has either successfully or attempted suicide. You think Jesus would be interested in them? Okay. We've spent a lot of time saying what the narrow way is not, so now let me say what it is. What did Jesus mean when he said, enter this narrow gate and stay on the narrow way? Again, the biggest clue is what we've already seen. This is the conclusion of his sermon where he attacked the idea of this that we have the capacity to help ourselves. 
that actually we're all murderers in this room. And most of us are adulterers. That the problem isn't our actions, it's our heart. I've asked this before, let me ask it again. Is there someone in your past or somebody in your life right now that if I said that person's name to you, feelings of resentment, anger, bitterness would well up inside of you? Well, join the club with me, you're a murderer according to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. Are there days when you're just mad at the world and mad at yourself and mad at everybody? Have you ever looked with envy on things? Say, man, I wish I had that. I wish I had that marriage. I wish I had that house. I wish I had that life. I wish I had those brains. Have you ever looked on anything that's not pure? Are there hidden addictions that we, we won't tell anybody about because we're so ashamed of them? There are any of a million things like this in our lives. Jesus says, I'm afraid you're not going to be able to fit through the gate. At one point in the sermon, Jesus said, your righteousness has got to be higher than the religious leaders. That would be like me saying this to you. Um, You've got to skate faster and ski better than anyone in the Winter Olympics right now. I'd say, I can't do that. But Jesus says at the end of Matthew chapter 5, I want you to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It requires coming to the gate and saying, I can't come in. I need you to let me in. I don't have a key. I'm giving all of myself to you. And it's so, and Jesus knew it's so hard for us to do that. We always want to come to God and we want to say, hey, you see how I'm, I'm behaving right now? I'm doing pretty good. I haven't said that word in the last three days. I haven't looked at that in the last four days. Before he was a Christian, C.S. Lewis wrote why he didn't want to give his life to Jesus. And I think maybe this is where some of us may be. He said this, No word in my vocabulary expressed deeper hatred than the word interference. I wanted to be left alone. I didn't want any interference in my life. And if that's us, we have to listen to what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I've come to interfere with you. I've come to bring you to this narrow gate. He knows the emptiness, the loneliness, the longings that we have, the relationships we wish that we were in. Now, if you're thinking here, well, Shelton, the reason I'm not a Christian is um, I don't want to be narrow. I don't want to be in a cramped, boring, confining worldview. But I'll tell you that the testimonies of billions of people, most of us in this room can say this, that once God put us through that narrow gate, all of life became meaningful. Everything. Washing dishes became meaningful. Everything. 
the world opened up to us. And like C.S. Lewis says, the way into the kingdom may seem like a small door, but once you get in there, there's this huge house where we understand, ah, oh, this is why I'm here on earth. This is what I'm supposed to do. I read this week about the U.S. Space Agency. They're trying to get more and more money so that they can uh, go to Mars. And so uh, this is what they said. What if your purpose on this planet isn't on this planet? Now give us money. Because what if your purpose on this planet isn't on this planet? And I liked what Ross Douthat of the New York Times responded. He said this, Let them go all the way to Mars and beyond the Milky Way they will still be deprived of true happiness, moral virtue, and spiritual advancement and be unable to solve their own social problems. The way is narrow because we can't bring anything in with us. No thoughts of, here's what I've done for you, God. That's why it's so narrow. We have to completely and totally rely on God's grace in this way, which he promises to give to everyone. It's also narrow because um, we have to go in alone. My two heroes are here today. My darling wife and my lovely mother. They can't go in for me. Children, your parents can't go in for you. The church can't go in for you. You go in one at a time. All right, let me close by just mentioning two or three things that we might have just passed over here. Do you notice what Jesus says here? He says that everybody is on the road, every single person. Everybody's on a path. That's what life is. We're all on this journey. The question is, where are we headed? And why is the Broadway called easy here? Because every single one of us were born in the Broadway you notice he says that they find the narrow way. He doesn't say that they find the broad way. We don't have to find it. It's easy to follow my selfish desires. It's easy to live for myself. Just learn to turn down the dial on my conscience a little bit every day. But there are these deep longings that we have and every once in a while, God pricks your heart, pricks my heart, and says, this is a signpost. This is a signpost to enter into my kingdom where Jesus is king. I love what the great scientist Blaise Pascal wrote about this. He said, what else does our craving and this helplessness tell us except there was once in us a true happiness of which all that now remains is an empty trace. And we try in vain to fill it with everything around us, but none can help since our infinite longings can only be filled with an infinite and changeless object, in other words, by God himself. And then there's this thing that might make you nervous here where Jesus says only a few find it. Is this true? Should, should we feel nervous that only a few find it? Martin Lloyd-Jones ends his commentary on this uh, verse by saying, 
the rest of Scripture seems to point a, a different direction. Do you know that Jesus says, uh, or that God says in the Old Testament, nations 500 times in the Old Testament about his word being for all the nations? One time a man came to Jesus and he asked Jesus, are there going to be a lot of people that are going to be saved or just a few? And do you recall his response? His response was, that, that's not the question. The question is, are, are, are you going to be there? What does the rest of Scripture say? Revelation 7.14 says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne. And a number is given, 144,000. Now that's a symbolic number. That's 1,200 times 1,200. That is almost too many to count. 12 representing 12 tribes of Israel, 12 representing the apostles. That is the gospel going everywhere. You can't number. Three times in Revelation it talks about the redeemed people. And every time it says there's so many you can't even number them. In John the Gospel of John, Jesus told his disciples, when I get lifted up on the cross, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to draw all men to myself. He didn't say I'm going to draw a few men. He said I'm going to draw all people to myself. The people on islands, on archipelagos, on continents. The Gospel is going to go throughout the world. Pilate was wrong when, they said, when he said, put on top of, uh, the, uh, above the head of Jesus on the cross, put, put on their king of the Jews. He should have said king of the nations because that's who our Jesus is. There's 2.3 billion people in the world today who name Jesus as their savior. And sure, there's another 6 billion, 5 or 6 billion who need to come to Christ, but 2.3 billion is not a few. But I would say that for most of us, what we need to pay attention to is that Jesus not only says that the gate is narrow and not wide, he says it's hard to stay on that path. And I think that's because there's this constant temptation for us to take our eyes off of, how did I get on this narrow way? We forget that the fruit that Christ is after is love and thankfulness. Because right after this, he says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons? And in your name do mighty marvelous works. And I'm afraid I'm going to say, I don't know who you are. You thought that that brought you into the gate. I love what the great Welsh doctor Martin Lloyd-Jones said about this. He said, when we stand before God, and I'm quoting him here, God will not be interested in your opinions or mine about himself and about worship, and about politics, and about a thousand and one other things. He will be interested in one thing only. What have you done with Jesus Christ? My son passed an article on to me by Jamie Smith called, We Can't Think Our Way Out of This. I highly recommend it. You can get it online. We Can't Think Our Way Out of This. It's kind of autobiographical in terms of 
He's a professor of philosophy, by the way, a great thinker. Many of us really enjoy his books. And he's talking about when he first started preaching. He was in, I think he was in Bible school. Please listen to this. I would drive to town on a Sunday morning and preach. I look at my sermon notes from this period and I cringe. I want to go back to those congregations and apologize for boring them to death and, yeah, for my youthful selfishness. Imagining my speculations had anything to do with living the Christian life. Here were people quietly burying their elders, terrified for children bent on destroying themselves, facing death and loneliness and loss, never given permission to doubt, carrying any number of secret burdens and sins they long to confess. And here's a 22-year-old kid who's read a lot of books trying to parse the Trinitarian personhood through 19th century scholasticism as if it mattered. I think an easy case can be made that the most privileged church in the first century was the church of Ephesus. Read the book of Ephesians. What a marvelous explanation of theology. And here are their first three pastors. Uh, Let's see if we might have these guys. St. Paul, Timothy, and the Apostle John. That's heavy hitters, right? (laughs) Yeah, heavy hitters. I mean, that, two of those guys wrote 17 of the 26 books in the New Testament. Can you imagine having those three pastors? And yet when Jesus writes to the book, uh, to the Ephesians in Revelations, he says this, your theology is pretty straight, but I have something against you. You've lost your first love. Remember, and you can look this up, he says, remember where you started. As we walk on our Christian journey, why do you think we're on this path, Christian? Because we read our Bible every day? Because we say our prayers? Or is it, do we remember that Jesus said, you've got to come in And you can bring nothing in with you because you have to trust me and me alone. Let's never forget that our God is merciful. That it is grace that has brought us this far. And grace and God's kindness and love and mercy will bring us to the end of our earthly journey. Amen. Let us pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that when Jesus came, his message was to people like us, so broken inside, so ruined. And he just didn't stay with those people, but he changed them through his message and, of course, through his resurrection. We pray, Father, that we would understand that Jesus invites us to throw off all of the things that we hold on to, anger, bitterness, addictions, 
self-righteousness and to trust him and him alone as our Savior to give us eternal life and meaning because we pray through his name. Amen.